You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Friday, everybody. I don't know, man. I just have this itch to get outside, start walking, start shed hunting. It's like, I know it's only January, and but it's been a cold-ass January. And there's like this part of me that it feels like I've been put in a cage. And I need to get out of that cage, whether that's get out of work and get out of uh, the house and just breathe some fresh air and walk until my feet bleed looking for antlers. I I absolutely love doing that, and uh, I think I'm going to do more of that. And this year, if if the weather cooperates, I'm going to bring my kids with me too because I have a feeling that they would have just as much fun doing that as I would. Of course, now I'll probably throw some antlers out there so it's a guaranteed find for them. But still... I don't know, man. Something about shed hunting I absolutely love. Now, today's podcast, man. I I don't know. I don't really know how to how to express this. I talked with a guy today, and his name is Iad Yayaway. That's his name, Iad Yayaway. He's from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so he's not too far from me, and he is a hardcore bow hunter and. There is, I don't, there's only one way that I can really describe this style of bow hunting. And it is, if you've ever seen the movie Point Break with Patrick Swayze, right? And he is, it's something with surfing. Like I can, I can relate 
the way people some people talk about bow hunting with some like some people talk about surfing it's like the spiritual thing right it's not about the harvest it's about the journey right and uh, Ead today talks about about that how he fell in love with bow hunting and it all is a culmination into a book that he has recently written called Crimson Arrows a Bow Hunting Odyssey and it's just his 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 bow hunting career put down into a book it's bow hunting career thus far he's only 40 and man i i i really enjoyed talking with him and just how he describes bow hunting i feel that something some his description of that is what's lost for a lot of people in hunting in general today. Everybody sees inches and you have to make it about the inches and you're not worthy unless the buck is gigantic, which is all completely horseshit, right? The inches on top of the head in the grand scheme of things do not matter one bit, you know? one bit it does it doesn't and uh, he does a really good job of describing that on on his end and um and i have a lot in common with him from uh, i guess like a belief uh, a belief towards bow hunting and towards mother nature and stuff like that so it was a, just just a really good conversation again his book is crimson arrows a bow hunting journey and this podcast man uh as a host of a podcast is just uh when you get a guest like this who just ha- is really good at describing how he, you know how and why he loves what he loves and that's bow hunting um, and then obviously it, we get into his book but it just makes my job as a host that much easier i just ask the questions and listen so uh, that's what you're getting today um, is just a, a really, really good conversation with a really passionate bow hunter who um, is thinking the right way, if you ask me. So that's what today's podcast is about. Now, before we get into today's podcast, I do have to whore myself out just for a little bit and talk about ripcord arrow rests. Now, at the ATA show recently, they came out with a new limb-driven rest and uh you know i've never had a limb driven rest on my site i or on my bow i know that there are a lot of guys out there who like limb driven systems so uh ripcord now has a limb driven rest that you guys should all go check out and uh make sure you uh go to ripcordarrowrest.com again dude this is a company that is one of the most popular and one of the best rests on the entire market. They are made in America, and uh, it's a veteran-owned and ran company. So, uh, you know, win, win, win on all of those things. And uh, like I said, I have I know I've talked to you guys about this before, but uh, I've had, you know, last year I got a new rest put on my bow, but before that, man, I've had the same rest on my bow for like, I don't even know how many years, over seven or eight, and uh, it works every single time, and that's important when uh, the moment of truth comes. You know, you're not thinking about your gear, you're thinking about what you need to do as an archer. So, 
ripcordarrest.com. Enough of the talking. It is a it's it is a little bit longer than normal podcast, but it's just so good that uh, I had to go long on it. Um, so I guess this is kind of like a hunter profile podcast with the author of Crimson Arrows, a bow hunting odyssey, and his name is Iad Yayaway. All right, everybody. On today's podcast, we have a we're going to be doing something a little bit different because I am going to be interviewing a gentleman here, uh, basically from my neck of the woods growing up. Uh, he was just uh, in a town south of me a little ways, and he wrote a book, and that na- the book, uh, name of that book is Crimson Arrows, a bow hunting odyssey. And uh, myself, and I know a lot of you guys, the listeners of this podcast, are bow hunting freaks as well. And uh, so I am going to interview him. And t- today our guest is a gentleman who of all the names, like I'm, I'm not good at <laughs> names, right? I, I mess up Smith, right? So, so I practiced a lot for this one. And I even, before we started recording, I practiced with you to make sure I got it right from, let's see, Ead Yayaway, right? Oh, couldn't have done better. That's awesome. Just perfect. <laughs> Just perfect, man. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. So there is a little bit of a backstory, right? So I played football against your brother. I, I'm from Mount Pleasant, Iowa originally, and you and your family, your brother, uh, was from Keokuk, which is in the same division or the same conference uh, in southeastern Iowa. And uh, your brother graduated the same year I did, and your brother kicked the crap out of us Every single time that we played them. Yeah, he loved to play, and he's he was a phenomenal player. I had two brothers; they both really standouts on the field, and uh, and even better, even better people. Uh, just really good guys, and that team was special in '99. I remember playing, and, and even when I played Mount Pleasant, they just, I mean, they were the team to reckon with, and and talk about a consistent program up there. So I, I know they always got fired up for those games, and it's always been a a great battle up there, but I remember that team. It was, it was a great team. Yeah. Yeah. I think we lost we, my senior year. We obviously lost to Keokuk and then we lost to uh, Grinnell. I think they ended up winning the, uh, the championship that year. But um, if we would have won our first playoff game, I think we would have had to play Keokuk again. And uh, I don't know how any of that turned out. I just know that we didn't make it. But it was—it's always kind of cool, you know. How it's a small world, right? I'm like, God, this guy's name, because the uh, uh, my buddy Mitch from Palo Outdoors in Cedar Rapids—he's the guy who built my arrows this year and uh, put the D loop on my bow and got that set up. Um, he reached out to me. He's like, Hey, man, you got to check out this guy. He had he he wrote a book about bow hunting, and I really think your listeners will, uh, you know would like it because he's got some cool stories and uh long story short here we are yeah mitch is a mitch is a great guy and i tell you he knows about as much as there is to know about archery and, oh, yeah. and you won't get better information than from him so coming from him that means a lot but i appreciate you reaching out it means a lot thank you yeah yeah all right so before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast why don't you tell us where you're from and what do you do for a living well, I'm, I, I was born and raised in Keokuk, Iowa, southeast Iowa, and um, grew up there, spent most of my teen years there, and then I went to Quincy, Quincy University, and played played uh, a little baseball there over the years, and then from there I went down to St. Louis, and 
I went and do a grad school down there and as uh, I, I'm an optometrist up in Cedar Rapids. So an eye doctor up in Cedar Rapids and I've always wanted to be in healthcare, uh, for the longest time. And I didn't know really exactly, you know, what type of healthcare, but as time went on, I, I kind of, you know, went in that direction and really, really enjoy it. So, uh, that's what I do for a living up in, up in Cedar Rapids and, uh, but born and raised in Keokuk and, and spent, you know, most of my uh, time hunting down there. And that's where I started to hunt and, and bow hunt uh, among other things. So, right. Right. So one question that I always like to ask people from Iowa is because on this podcast, I talk to a lot of people who hunt like Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, some really, really high pressured, hard to hunt states with very low age class in deer. And so, you know, here in Iowa, we're blessed um, so when you, when you started hunting and you were growing up and you, you know, got, spent some time in the tree and you started to see some of these bucks, did you ever realize how much better we had it growing up in Southeast Iowa than some of the rest of the nation? You know, at the time I started bowing around 91, 92, and it was, it was just a time when some of the videos were coming out and there wasn't a lot on TV and not a lot of books, but you know, growing up, even as a, as a young guy, you know, five, six, seven years old, I can remember some of the bigger deer. We kind of grew up in a suburban type of a wooded area, you know, running, running across the road and you see a flash of them. And so in my mind, you know, even as a child, I had a, a notion of how big they were, you know, where we grew up and where we were from. And I, I can't honestly say until I, I grew older and, and went to school in St. Louis and, and I spent some time in Orlando and, and out West and, you know, showing some guys some pictures and talking to them where I had a, a real appreciation for how lucky we were to, to live in Iowa, um, which truly uh, I think is as good as it gets. But I, as a youngster, I, you know, to me, that was just the way deer looked. That was just the way they were. And, uh, but no, I can't say when I was younger, but, uh, you know, in my, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I, I definitely had a, a great respect and appreciation for how lucky I was to grow up where I did. Right. So as you were, you know, go, you know, going to school and, and maybe, uh, distributing your seed, you know, or however they say that, sowing your oats, your wild oats uh, across the rest, <laughs> rest of the nation, were other people like, "Hey, man, you got to get, you got to take me hunting in Iowa." You know, it's funny that they would, and you know, one of the, I think one of the greatest blessings I had was, you know, I grew up with a family that had no idea what hunting was. Uh, my dad, you know, had never hunted. Uh, uh, my mom certainly, you know, her, my grandfather, her dad, um, had some experience, but he lived in Cleveland and. And so everything that I kind of got into was on my own, on my own accord. I, I just, I remember telling my dad, Hey, you know, can we, can we go out in the timber this weekend or can we go fishing or, and we kind of learned together. So, um, so I really grew up with no land. I mean, I didn't have land growing up and I was fortunate to have, I didn't start really bow hunting until I was 14 or so. And so I, I knocked on doors and I, I just remember, you know, saying no, no, no. Everybody was like, no, we got somebody hunting or. And finally, you know, a, a farmer I mean, just up the road, I, I remember when he said yes, I was like, oh, you know, like, I finally have a place to go. So, you know, the conversation never got very far when people would ask me because I really had nowhere to go. I mean, I had the place that um, the farmer was kind enough to let me go, but I never had family farm or, you know, a place that I could take people. So we talked about it, but, you know, I really had no ends, if you will, um, to get back to take anybody else. So in some ways that was good and bad, but yeah, when they found out where I was from, uh, especially when I lived out West, like, Oh, you know, you know, maybe we can, you know, get you on some elk if, if, and, uh, 
and I can't say I wouldn't have done that if I had somewhere to take them, but, uh, yeah. no, I, I was lucky to have a couple places that people trusted me to, to go. And, uh, I really didn't have my own place to hunt until after I got out of school, um, and lost some places while I was at school. So, yeah. and that's just the nature of it. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like our stories are, are similar in a way because, um, you know, I, I grew up and my, my experience from with the outdoors was only in fishing and a little bit of trapping mm-hmm. uh and maybe some pheasant hunting uh when i was up at up uh, north central iowa with my uh when i was uh my my grandparents were my babysitters right so like my dad and mom they didn't hunt so how did you um, I guess, how did that conversation start with your parents and, and what sparked you, you know, what was that, that trigger that was like, Hey, I want to start be a outdoorsman when your parents maybe necessarily weren't, you know, truth be told, my earliest memories were, you know, we lived in that little wooded area and always wanted to go out into the, into the forest and and get out there. And, and, you know, I love to fish and I, you know, I remember every stream we came across, you know, when we went you know, across the river to look for geodes or, you know, anything like that, I'd always take my little net with me and try to catch tadpoles. And I just always remember since my earliest memories, literally in kindergarten, you know, a recess in first grade, you know, uh, you know, counting the days to the weekend that, you know, my dad would take me fishing when he could. And he was so busy and yeah. I didn't really appreciate how busy he was until I got older and, and how much he sacrificed to take me. But, um, literally the conversation was like, Hey dad, I, w- I would like to try this. And he would look at me like, well, you know, I don't even know what that is, but sure. Let's go try. And, you know, uh, we were really good at doing it the wrong way. I'll tell you that for a long time. <laughs> and, and, uh, I remember seeing a turkey in our front yard when I was like eight and thinking, Oh, that's no big deal. I'll get Thanksgiving dinner for us. And, you know, by the time I even opened the door, he was gone. So it was just really trial and error. And I just read a lot. I mean, um, I remember outdoor life always had a cool cover and I'd grab those at supermarkets and, and pour over them and, and always tell my mom and dad, you know, I'd really like to go to Canada or, and they would always, they were so, they were so kind and said, and they still are such great people. Um, and would do everything I could to, they could to take me. But, uh, I really, like I said, I think it was a blessing because I, I really gained appreciation for all of it. Uh, it took me three years to even get a doe and, uh, I mean, nowadays it's almost, uh, you know, I meet some kids and stuff and that, you know, shooting giant deer their first year out and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, congratulate them and I'm happy for them. But there was a kind of a mystique with it when you were younger, like, uh, just to get a deer that close was special, especially when no one in the family had ever done it. Right. So right. that's how it went. That's my earliest memory. Just always wanting to be outside. Right. Um, is the best answer I can give you. Yeah. So then when you told your dad, I want to go hunting Mm -hmm. and in your book, you mentioned he was, you know, he says, Oh, well, you know, we got to go to hunter safety course first. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. with your dad, not a hunter and your mom wasn't a hunter. Did you have another mentor in your life that maybe gave you information or took you hunting because even at 14 i mean you can't drive and i'm sure you wanted to go and your dad may not have always been able to to take you how did that how did oh, that absolutely. play out you know absolutely I, 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 once again I, I was so fortunate there was there was two guys in my life uh that really really took me under their wing and, and roger whitaker from keokuk and and he was at the hunter safety course that's kind of how i met him that day my father took me it was in you know a 
uh, September in, 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 uh, 1991. And, and we went there and we did all our tests and then we, you know, shot the clay pigeons and somehow he knew my dad because my dad was a healthcare practitioner back then in a small town. And, and, uh, said, Hey, you know, I'd be happy to take your son, you know, squirrel hunting with us if you'd like to go some weekend. And, you know, it was like Santa Claus to me. It was like, Oh my gosh, I'd love to go. And I just remember thinking, Oh, please dad say yes. You know, let me go. And you know how it is when you're a kid and you know, you just wait for that answer from your parents. Yes or no, no matter what it is. Right. And I remember him saying, yeah, yeah, you know, fine. Sure. If you want to go. And, and I just, I just don't remember how excited I was. And so Roger Whitaker, his son, Andy, you know, they took me under their wing and gave me an opportunity. And then, you know, when I was young, younger, my best friend, Ryan, uh, his dad, um, Gary, um, also, um, let me experience like turkey hunting for the first time. And, right. you know, without those two guys, I, I really wouldn't have had the opportunity or, or you know, maybe it would have faded, you know, but yeah. they, uh, you know, and you know how it is now you're a father and you know how busy you are and, and, you know, taking the time to take a, a youngster is so important because, uh, you don't know how long that hunger is going to last. So those are the right. two guys that I really, uh, tip my hat to and wish I could repay them in some way because, um, they did so much for me. So, you know, there, there's times when let's say a kid goes to his parents and if their parents aren't involved, like if my, my kid grows up and, and says, dad, I want to go hunting with you. I'd be like, yes, let's go. <laughs> and if a, a parent isn't interested, let's say, you know, it, it's maybe not their hobby. It could be difficult mm -hmm. for them to go out and do something that a, they don't know anything about and B secondary they may not even like to do so so it sounds like you had uh, like a path a really good path that just opened you up you had uh, tons of opportunity to go and i guess be exposed to the, the outdoors yeah that's true I, I i tell you and i i see it in my son um and I, I look back now. i was so persistent with my parents i mean i, w I guess i would urge parents i've got two little boys and I really listen to them. Like yeah. when they, I can see it in their eyes when they're hungry to do something like dad, I want to go play, but he's, my son's a huge baseball fan. I want to go play catch. And even when I'm dead tired, I'll, I'll drag myself out there and, and we'll play after work. No, I've never said no once. And I think it's important for parents to, whether it be hunting or baseball or anything their kids want to do is really listen to them and give them that opportunity because, you know, passion, I, I've always said is the secret to life. And, and, uh, that would be my advice is even if you don't want to do it is at least, maybe try to find somebody who that you trust that would be willing to take them and take you too. Yeah. to uh, let your kids see some things because um, it, it's so important to, to feed that passion on those little ones. They, uh, they're so excited. You don't want to lose that magic, but I was so persistent. I, you know, my mom was like, Oh no, you know, we don't like guns or, Oh, we don't want you to do that. And I was like, come on, just, you know, just let me try. Just let me try. And I think they just finally broke or they just <laughs> like, they did. I, I know they did. Cause I, I, uh, they tell me now when they see my son, you know, really poking at me to get outside and they're like, that's just like you were. And I remember, I remember being so persistent that I just would not take no for an answer. And, uh, and, uh, I remember on one occasion, I, I was probably 15 or 16 and my parents were going out of town and we had this little moped in the garage that, uh, me and brothers and we drove and, and they were going out of town. My sister was staying with us. And, uh, I remember taking one of my, I think it was my 12 gauge. I had a, my Mizuno baseball bag and I broke it down into like three pieces. Like you'd break down a shotgun and, <laughs> and I put it in that Mizuno bag and I got on the highway at like 4am with this little moped that went like 30 miles an hour. And, 
and I just took <laughs> off and uh I still remember those semis blowing past me like almost like pulling me under and it was I hunted near uh near Croton so it was like a 30 minute drive in a car was like an hour and a half in that moped and I'm like the whole time like I'm gonna die like I'm not gonna make it but I had to be on that ridge at daybreak and uh this is a true story I don't think I've ever told anybody this in person um so I got there and I was a little late getting to the top of the ridge and just sweating bullets, you know, because I'm like, Oh my gosh, but I had a helmet. So yeah. those kids listening at home and, uh, <laughs> and I, I ended up, <laughs> ended up missing the gobbler, um, that morning. And I only had three. So I go in my vest to find more shells and I'm out of shells. So now I'm thinking like, man, what am I going to do? So this is like rural Iowa gravel roads. Like, so I went to like all these different houses and kept knocking on doors, asking for <laughs> shotgun shells. And that is a God is, that is a true story. And this one woman, I'll never forget. She answers the door in like a nightgown and she looks at me like nowadays she'd call nine one one and probably right. pays for me. Right. But back then I remember she looked at me and I said, excuse me, ma'am, you know, I'm turkey hunting. And I ran out of shotgun shells. Do you have any shotgun shells? And she goes back inside and she comes back with like five shotgun shells. <laughs> and she's like, here you go. And so I went back out in the field and I hunted till like two o'clock and never saw another bird, but that's how persistent I was. And that's how much I wanted to be successful out there. And so, um, one day I'll tell my kids that. So like I took a moped and I got in trouble for the moped thing, like, you know, but, uh, that's how persistent I was to make sure I got out there. Man, I tell you what, that story's awesome. But like <laughs> if, if the cops pulled somebody over with a broken down <laughs> shotgun in a Mizuno baseball bag these days, it would be, it'd be on the news. It would be on the news. Exactly. And like, you know how those semis go by in a car? Well, you know, they, they yeah. blow by and I'm like, you know, my, my front wheels would kind of shake a little bit. I'm like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it Just stay in the right lane. Just stay focused. Right. I remember, and, uh, I remember going into oh. a, uh, uh, a diner when me and my uncles would go pheasant hunting and we would go like, we'd go in the morning, we wouldn't eat breakfast and it was like a late breakfast and they'd go in and they'd set their shotgun shells or their shotguns down against the door or the booth. And, you know, they'd walk yep. in sit, and it was all, it was all good. You know, obviously you can't do that. It too. was all just a different time. And, yeah. you know, it kind of goes back to that, the, you know, the mystique of, of the bow hunting where, you know, there was no social media and there was no, you know, uh, and, and so it's just to see a doe from a deer stand, especially from a kid who didn't know what he was doing. It was like, oh my, you know, the, the heart's in your throat and you're, you know, you just want to be successful. But, uh, I, I definitely had a passion for it that I can't really put into words. Usually I, I, uh, I have not told that story, I think ever, uh, out loud other than like my brothers. And they kind of look at me like, yeah, right. Whatever. I'm like, dude, you don't have any idea what I would do to, to get a gobbler. So that's awesome. So then, okay, as you're growing up, right, um, you, you did a little, it sounds like you did a little bit of hunting. Um, you know, did your parents let you go out by yourself? You know, because I've talked to a lot of people where, you know, they're okay with hunting, but when the kid asked to go out by themselves and maybe the you know mom and dad can't go or your mentor couldn't go with you and you know you felt that you were able to go by yourself was was there a, a stair step there for your parents that they were a little bit worried you know about a kid going out with a loaded gun by themselves in the woods 
Yeah, there. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I look back now as a father, and you're a father, and I think, oh my gosh, like I'd never let my kid do some of the stuff. I like for me, like climbing tree stands. I remember climbing tree stands. I know my parents had no idea what a tree stand was, but I didn't use any safety harnesses, and yep. you know, I was hanging like Curious George off these, you know, these oak limbs. And there's been numerous times where the stand would slip and fall, like you know how they drop six inches and that catches again, and you're so. I mean, they really didn't have any idea what I was doing as far as that. And they were the best parents in the world. But once again, they had no experience with it. And most of my hunting was, you know, I had 12 gauges and I pheasant hunting duck. I did everything. But, yeah. you know, most of my time was bow hunting. And I think they saw me, you know, I never practiced, obviously, where we lived. But if I practiced with my gun, it'd be at the at the range or, um, but I think they trusted me. I, I was, a, I was a, you know, I felt like I was a good kid and I, I didn't, you know, cause them too much trouble. So I, uh. Um, did the hunter safety like they asked and they always, you know, they put me off for a lot of years until I got to be about 14 and then they said, okay, fine, we'll try the hunter safety, but it really came down to persistence and they trusted me, but yeah, um, definitely. I look back now, like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> I don't think, uh, I let my son do what I did. So, but once again, it wasn't because they didn't care. It's just that I don't think they knew what I was doing necessarily. Yeah. So, so the you know crimson arrows a bow hunting odyssey right so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when did you get bit by the bow hunting bug so kind of back to roger roger whitaker we the, the gentleman that offered to take me squirrel hunting with the hunter safety course we were out there and we went two or three times and you know was learning all kinds of things from him and teaching me about tracks and trails we got back one night and, and his son, Andy, he said, Hey dad, you know, you want to shoot a little bit tonight? And Roger said, yeah, let's shoot. And I said, what are they talking about? Like it's pretty late to be target practicing. And so they got in their trunk and they pull out these, these recurves. And I saw, I just remember seeing these bright fletchings and you know, these, these cool, I mean, just really, I was just kind of awestruck by them. And then when they started shooting them, I was really like taken aback by, it was so silent and they were, there's this pizza hut box and they put it against this fence post and I still can see the pizza hut emblem. I can still see that logo <laughs> sitting against that old fence post and just hearing those arrows like whack, 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 whack. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, if that's not the, the coolest thing. And from that day on, I, that's all I could think about. Like I got to get a bow. And so that was October. And once again, back to the persistent kid, I was like, mom, dad, you know, just, that's all I want for Christmas, you know, just, just a bow. And, you know, and so, you know, my draw length now is about 27 inches. Well, they bought me like a 31 inch bow and my arrows were like 40 inches long and, you know, they bought them at Walmart and yeah, I didn't care. I mean, I was getting, my arm, forearm was getting, you know, slapped like crazy all summer, but I had my bow. So it was that one night in Iowa that the, that Roger and his son started shooting their bows that, that, that hooked me and it just shows you like one event in your life can change everything. Oh, so, yeah. uh, but that was it for me. That was all it took. And I just wanted to, wanted to be a bow hunter from that day on. So what year was your first attempt at bow hunting and how old were you? So that was the fall of 91. So I was 14. Um, and then 92 fall of 92 when I was 15, Roger, once again, we shot all summer. I mean, I literally, I remember having football camp and like shooting until right before camp mom would drop me off i'd we'd do our thing our two a days back then and then right back at it and so by that you know we would shoot i remember we'd shoot bottle caps from tree houses all summer and nightcrawler caps and you know we'd shoot into the ground with no care and yep. 
you know, like they say, if you're not losing lures, you're not fishing hard enough. Um, <laughs> same thing with my arrows. If I wasn't breaking them, I wasn't shooting enough. And, you know, and uh, I, didn't have, I didn't know how fast my bow was shooting. I didn't know how long my draw length was. I just knew I wanted to, you know, try to hit what I was aiming at. And so that fall, Roger took me for the first time when I was 15. And um, I think there's a picture in that book of the first day Andy and I ever hunted together yep. um, with my first day in the field. So um, it would be the fall of 92, October. Okay. I think it's October 3rd, to be honest with you. It says here... October 1992, first day of bow hunting. Andy, there, yep, there you go. Andy. Yep, I remember it was, yep, yep so, I remember it was. Uh, did you have, uh, like, I don't know, when you, for me, I gun hunted first, just like most people, you know, and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. bow hunting happened, right? And I didn't have an appreciation for bow hunting until I was later on in life, but as a kid, I can remember it was much different. There was a lot less movement. There was, you know, you had to sit still and you had to be quiet and and, and just like nature came alive in in the timber, right? So, so what was your first year of bow hunting like for you? You know, I remember I got to see the seasons change. Yeah, I remember October, and back then we hunted one tree stand. Yeah. Like now, we talk about maneuvering with the wind and all these different setups and interior edges. And, and then it was like, we had one stand and we hung that stand and we hunted that stand. And so early in the season, it was exciting. And then after about three or four sits, you're like, you know, and the leaves start to change and, and then the acorns start to drop. And so for me, it was, uh, it was, it was peaceful, but at the same time it was challenging because back then I had like a pair of rubber boots that you'd buy, you know, at a grain store. I had a little cotton jacket and I remember I'd wear this Kika Chief sweatshirt underneath it. <laughs> and I had a pair of thermals and a cotton pair of, of pants. And I remember going to bed on November because we would hunt Saturday morning and Sunday afternoon. Roger would pick me up and we'd jump in. And and I remember, like, how cold I was. I remembered how cold I was, like, just shaking in that tree. Like, you know, just make it, you know, how much longer. And you look at your clock. And we would go eat at this little restaurant in Donaldson, Iowa called Rosie's. And, you know, that was just like your reward for sitting out. And then the afternoon is more pleasant, but I loved it because it was, it was solitude and it was my own pace and you didn't feel like you had to go out there and you had two or three days to get it done with, you know, people everywhere and pushing it. It was a quiet, a quiet thing, a quiet yeah. sport. And I, I, that's what I remember the most about it is how, how much time you had to yourself and how much, uh, how many of the seasons you got to see. Right. Right. So for me, you know, I did some hunting when I was younger and then I got into high school and and athletics and, you know, hunting wasn't a priority. And then I had my, my trigger moment for me was in 2006. I was 26 years old. And, you know, I had this experience where I said, you know, I am going to be a bow hunter and I'm going to bow hunt every season as much as I can for the rest of my life. Right. So at that moment right there, I became a bow, like I became a, not just a hunter, but a bow hunter. Did you have a moment like that growing up where you said, I'm in, I am now in love with this and I want to do it every year? I I do. I I did have that time. It was, uh, it's interesting you ask. I, you know, I did it all back in the nineties, like from, you know, small game to fat. I had German short hairs. I, I had a litter of short hairs once with my, with my, uh, with my dogs and we'd go to South Dakota and, you know, I had over and unders and I shot 
you know, trap. And I mean, I did it all. And, uh, when I got into grad school, I had a short hair and I remember there was a retired high school teacher and, and, uh, it wasn't right to keep my bird dog, you know, if I wasn't able to get her in the field. And so I remember calling him and it was really hard on me. And I just said, Hey, I'd like to give you my dog Keita. And, uh, cause I'm going to move to St. Louis. And, but from that time, since I gave up my bird dog, um, and then leaving, the only thing that I continued to do and had, and not that it was a choice that I had a passion to do was bow hunting. Like I didn't make time to dove hunt. I didn't make time to pheasant hunt anymore. But the one thing I couldn't turn off was the the drive to get in the woods during bow season. Right. So I think just somewhere around 2000, um, I was 23 was when this is, that was all I wanted to do. I was last year, I shotgun hunted for turkeys. Um, all of it. I just, that was, and it wasn't a, a decision because I thought it was a cool thing or it was just what I felt like doing. It was, you know, what I was passionate to, just like some guys would say the same thing about fly fishing or, um, that's, that's when I said, I don't really, I can let everything else go. Like in school, then there'd be guys in grad school. They'd be like, yeah, I like to hunt, you know, after grad school, I'm going to, I'm going to start hunting again. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, man, I can't wait till after grad school. I'm going to go back on Saturday and you know, up to Quincy, Illinois and Hunter, it was that big of a drive for me, even when I was, you know, had so many things to do other than that. So that, that's probably when, after I, when I got to grad school and had to give up some other stuff. Right. Right. So I want to go, I want to take a step back now and I'm, you know, I'm in your book and do you remember harvesting your first deer with a bow? Oh yeah. I remember the, I remember the color of the fletchings and I remember what I saw when they crashed down the ridge. And I remember the anxiety I felt <laughs> when I crawled out of that tree thinking, Oh man, you know, am I gonna, cause I had unfortunately lost two does my first two years and I almost quit. Like that's how bad I felt. I just, I remember laying there in bed at night. Like, you know, I just felt like the, the worst thing to ever happen to bow hunting. And, uh, I just couldn't fathom, you know, making another mistake. And, uh, um, I just got out of that timber as fast as I could. And I got my friend Ryan, who was the son of Gary, who I brought up earlier. And I, and uh, he was sleeping and I was like, Ryan, we got to go find this deer. He's like, we're not going to find the deer. And you know, he's my friend. So he's giving me a hard time. And I said, no, we got to go. And, and, uh, it was just, a, it was a perfect shot. It was, a, you know, it was a hard shot. It was, it was perfect. And, uh, before I even got out of the tree, it was over, but I still remember the weight of that doe going up that ridge in their home and that the color of the tag was like this teal colored Iowa tag. And I remember everything about it. Like, you know, I'd finally accomplished something that had taken me three years to do. So, right. Right. So, so you harvested your very first deer with a bow. Was that, was that your first bow hunting harvest period? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It was a golden Eagle. And, uh, you know, back then it was the, the rage and it probably shot about 200 feet a second. And, you probably could have caught my arrows. They were, you know, big <laughs> aluminum arrows with five inch plastic fletchings. But, uh, that was for sure the, the first doe I ever, uh, first animal with a, with a bone arrow. So back then, and then like fast forward to 1995, October 29th mm-hmm. in your book here, I'm looking at it. It says uh-huh. first buck, your first uh-huh. buck with a bow, October 29th, 1995. So you're through your mentors. And what, was there anything special about a buck, um, that 
I don't know, like in certain in certain parts of the country, I um, guys would tell me, you know, if I shot a if I shot a buck, no matter what size it was, I put it in the back of my truck. I would drive around. Hopefully, someone would see me. We'd stop and we'd talk about it, or we'd go to the gas station, and people would be like, "Oh my God, a, a buck!" Did the uh-huh. fact that it had antlers on top of its head mean anything different to you? You know, whether it's the right or wrong answer, to me it did. I, yeah. There's something about seeing, you know, those antlers, whether, you know, it goes back centuries, I think even long, you know, antler game to humans, you know, have always been, you know, a little different. I mean, the argument always is, well, you know, they taste the same and it's the same meat and, you know, does taste better than bucks. But, you know, aside from all that, there's something about a white-tailed deer coming through a Midwest hardwoods. Right. The, 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 the contrast between their head and the white ring around the eye and say what you will, there's something about it that you really can't hardly put into words unless you try. Uh, and even then, like that was the basis of the book to try to describe some of those emotions, what that was like. But I remember thinking that deer could have been 200 inches and it would have been the same to me because it was just a huge stepping stone, um, to much to see a buck back then, but to take one. So Absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it was just, it, I can't say it was better. It was just a different feeling than, than the first doe. Right. Right. Did it, did it make you feel like, I don't know, just the way it is today. If you shoot a buck, it's like a beat your chest moment. Like I am a man, you know, like <laughs> did, did, did you feel like that? I mean, just like, uh, I, I did it, you know, like get fired up. <laughs> I think with bow hunting, because for me, it's always, it has never been the easiest thing. Uh, you know, the culmination of work that goes into that from hanging stands to, you know, the time spent in the field right. to the hours and hours you spent for one opportunity, you know, it's kind of like a, a track and field guy. You, you train all year, but you get that one chance at a sprint. And if you pull your hammy or your trip, it's over. Um, so I think for everything I've ever taken with a bow, I can't tell you it's ever been, well, some of the turkeys have, you know, flogged me and stuff. It's been more of a beat your chest kind of moment, you know, cause of the adrenaline. But with those, the, I would say the number one word I would describe when I, I do find an animal or a buck would be pride. Like I feel really proud of the effort put in and, right. and, uh, you know, how much energy it took and, and time. And, uh, then when it all comes together, it's like the icing on the cake. So it, it's definitely a uh, pride would probably be the, the number one word I'd use how I feel. Right. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you shot your deer. Did you, when, when did you start going into, let me back up a second. We all go through these different phases, right? And I think there, there's mm-hmm. been some guys talk a, a little bit about this where, okay, as a hunter, you want to, you, you just want to kill something, you know, a, a successful season is just going out and shooting something. And then you maybe want to mm-hmm. shoot a, a buck. And then that next phase is being a little bit more selective and passing smaller deer. When did you hit that moment where it's like, okay, the deer that I, these bucks that I would have shot last year or the previous year no longer interest me. I want to go for either a higher age class or a bigger rack size. I would say, honestly, the first time that happened would be 2000 and where it truly was a no brainer. If an immature animal walked by would be 2004. Okay. Um, that's when I really remember, you know, cause in, in, in lesser years, I mean, there's one thing to kind of, 
it, it's almost like someone taking an animal and it, it kind of something it bothers me when they say well you know he's only this or he's only yeah. that you know that uh, it never really sat well with me and uh before 04 i remember when when a three-year-old would run by or even a two-year-old my same adrenaline rush and want to take that animal was there yeah. and so i'd say in 04 that change where um you saw the animal and you're like, you appreciated him and you watched him walk by, but you really knew that to accomplish the same feeling you had with that first doe or that first buck, it had to be something different. That's how I knew when it was time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. I knew I wouldn't get the same feeling, um, by saying, and I was there. I mean, any, that's what I kind of said. These, some of these younger kids that shoot a 200 inch deer their first year, you know, um, you kind of lose them in that mystique. So for me, um, I had to, I felt that way about the, the eight pointer was my first buck, but then by Oh four, it became more of a, you just couldn't wait to tell somebody you got a deer when you were younger. I got a deer with my bow. And then you told yourself that, but you get to that point where you don't care anymore. Um, what people think and, and like it or not, we all go through those stages and everything we do where we want, um, people that your dad or your brother, or your friends say, Hey, good job. Right. And then as you get older, you get, and we've all been there. You get to the point where you realize it's really about you. And, uh, and that's when I think I got to that point no forward. It wasn't going to do me any good to, um, to harvest something that I knew, you know, wouldn't, uh, get me that, that, that feeling I was after. So Oh four for sure was when I first remember feeling really truly feeling like, um, I was going to pass anything but a mature deer. Right. So, you know, a lot's changed from 20 years ago right in the mid 90s what was you know what was your idea back then of a mature deer you know when you in 2004 when you you made the decision you know what i want to try to continue to improve every year on the animal that i harvest whether that's age class or rat antler size what what did you have a goal going into those seasons to say hey i want this or i'm not shooting anything at all um, I can honestly, truly tell you that I've never been into scores. Not that, I don't, not that I haven't done right. it myself and every animal I do, I do my own. But for me, even this last year, to me, the epitome of a, of a big mature animals, you know, the thick neck, the big yep. belly, the short legs, they just carry themselves almost like an NFL linebacker would, or the presence of a, you know, an athlete that walks into a room that, that just is different than everybody else. Yeah. And so you you just, and you know, as well as I do with those animals, especially here in Iowa look like, and they just carry themselves differently, especially the ones, you know, you don't ever see them, but once a year because they're so nocturnal and they just have a different presence about them. Almost like a, you say you fish a lot, you know, you've caught a big bass and a 20 inch plus bass, their eyeballs, the size of their mouth and just their overall girth. It's almost like a, you know, catch your heart in your throat moment when you see them surface. Yeah. Um, to me, that's when I know it's an animal that I'm after. And it could be a 180 inch whitetail or 120 inch. It doesn't change their demeanor or their neck size or the way they, they present themselves. So that to me is how I really, that's when I, and to this day, I, I really enjoy just a mature animal, whether it's, you know, a uh, 180 inch deer or a uh, hundred inch deer. Okay. So. so how were those, those first couple seasons for you? When you when you made that decision to harvest only a mature deer, you know some guys for you know they make a decision and two things happen: a 
they they take a step back and, and they don't follow through with their original goal and then they shoot a, a younger deer or they eat mm -hmm. their tag right so that's really right. you know dedication did you have sure. any seasons where ah, i just want to shoot something now and you, you kind of turn back on your original goal or did you ever have to eat your tag because the opportunity didn't present itself it's funny you ask that question that's a great point a uh, really really good point you think you're at a certain level and you think you're willing to do something. And it's, I think it's like a diet or a training regimen. And when push comes to shove and your, your back's against the wall, it's, it's time to make a decision, either eat the cupcake or yeah. <laughs> you shoot the three-year-old. And for me, that's when I knew, um, in 07 and 08, uh, I did not harvest the whitetail. Yeah. And, uh, those, I remember those are the first two years. And I remember the feeling of that, like, Oh man, that's, that's a weird feeling. I didn't, I didn't get one this year, but at the same time, um, there were days that I went out and said, okay, I'm just going to fill a tag. But when the opportunity presented itself, I, I just couldn't do it. It wasn't in me. Right. And that's how, you know, that's how I think, you know, whatever you're doing in life that you, you've, you've, you've climbed the ladder right. it's time that you just, it's not doing it for you anymore. Um, in many things. And that's how I knew Like even when I told myself, I'm just going to go out, fill a tag, um, you know, and that deer is at 20 yards quartering away and you're like, I just can't do it. It's just yeah. not, it's just not something I want to do. So, right. um, that's how I knew, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't say I didn't think that, yeah. um, after Oh four, but when, it, when a push came to shove and I was presented with a chance, I just passed it and not yeah. because I was better than anybody else. Just, it just wasn't in me to, to do it. So yeah. I remember having an experience like, like that in 2011, um, it was the last day of my rut vacation and, you know, then I had to go back to work on that Monday and sure enough, a hot doe comes through and brings four different four-year-olds out of nowhere, all chasing her. You know, I think the biggest was like a 150 inch nine pointer, probably four or five-year-old buck. I think wow. it was probably a five-year-old and he takes a long way around and then, uh, you know, this doe gets out of the picture and then this other four-year-old probably 140 class eight-pointer really good buck stands there at 30 yards for about broadside for about 15 minutes just kind of checking the air you know just observing everything and that would have been the biggest buck i ever harvested but for some reason it didn't he didn't make me want to kill him like it was more important for me to just to watch him at that point. And I knew right then, like I didn't want to harvest an animal just to harvest one. You know what I mean? So it, it, it was just, and I think that right there was what for me made it a successful season because I had the opportunity, but I decided to pass it because if I would have killed this buck, it would have been a kill just to kill and not, because I really appreciated the harvest. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. That's well said. And, and that, that hits on, on my point perfectly. You, yeah. you know, you could have told it, it flip the coin over. If you had told a hundred guys, I shot 150 inch whitetail last night, came in chasing a doe. You'd probably get a hundred pats on the back, except yeah. one that counts the most, which is yours. Yeah. And I know exactly what you mean. And that's, that's what I'm talking. That's when you get to that point where you realize you know, for me, like turkeys is an example. People always say, "Oh, you're going to shoot a double beer this year." Yeah, it's like I'll 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 take a Jake because yeah. to me, a Jake yeah. still gives me the same excitement. I have a me and Jakes don't get along very well. I've missed more <laughs> Jakes than <laughs> than anything I've ever hunted, and to me, 
they present more of a challenge than a big gobbler sometimes. Maybe it's a smaller target or whatever, but it gets me where I don't want to be emotionally and, and where I feel good about it. So, yeah, I mean, um, that's it's a great story and well said and really hammers home the point on that. All right, so what what two years in a row did you eat your tag? You said seven and eight? Yes, sir, seven okay. and eight. All right, so after that, did you did you ever get on a roll like – I'm on a roll now where I've killed two bucks in two consecutive years. Um, one was mature. Uh, this year's buck was one of those scenarios where I thought he was mature. And then after I walked up on him, I realized he wasn't uh, what I thought he was. I wasn't unpleased mm-hmm. or disappointed after I found that out. It was just, he wasn't what I thought he was, you know, you know, mm-hmm. not disrespecting mm-hmm. the animal at all, but after, but, sure. but I'm on a, I'm on a back to back, you know, I've, I've killed two deer, in two, two years back to back, did you ever go on a roll where you were just it clicked for you and you could walk into the timber, you know where you needed to be, uh, and then that translated into success for multiple years in a row? I think every year, but you know, going into 07, 08, I was I, I had a pretty good run, and then 07, 08, it was I couldn't do anything right. Yeah. Um, you know, I really couldn't. I missed a couple bucks. Um, had some some really easy opportunities that didn't that just didn't work out and uh uh it was hard on me um but after that it's almost i, I told my wife this in some ways things like that help you because they really oh, put yeah. it in perspective and you get in a, sometimes you get in the wrong streak like i've got to do it every year and, and sometimes it's a, a relief when you don't feel a tag because you realize hey it's it's not about that and yep. but like i said everybody's felt that and no matter who you are you can you know like the guys like i said to say oh i wouldn't have shot him if it was you know, I had another week to hunt, but you can just tell they're so excited and proud of them. And I just wish they would say, man, I, it was the greatest day of my life when this happened. Yep. And same thing with missing, you know, missing a couple seasons where it really, it puts in perspective how fortunate we are to, to do this and to even taste success because it's just not that easy. These big deer, um, you know, the guys who want to come die with a hunt, they, they say, I'm going to hold out for a 170. And I'm like, well, you know, I am too, but I've lived here for 25 years. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it, they're just not that common. And, um, so it, it's okay. But I think, uh, up to 07, 08, I was like, you know, I could get this done every year. And then, you know, it just didn't work out for two years. And then you start questioning, boy, am I ever going to do it again? You know, yeah. is it ever going to happen again? So, so what was it? Oh, four, uh, is when you start, mm-hmm. you know, you, you made that, you know, Hey, I'm going to start hunting mature deer. You had kind of a dry spell in in seven and eight, but you know, this, this book is not just about whitetails, right? For, for me, I live in Iowa and I have what, what's in front of me to hunt is Turkey and whitetail. I mean, there's other things like pheasants and stuff, but you know, the two main focuses throughout the year for me, number one above and be you know above everything is whitetail and then turkey is basically something to hunt when i can't hunt whitetail you know what i mean but right you have hunted a lot of different animals and have been successful on a lot of different animals what was it was there was there something as you're growing up and you started hunting whitetails where you're like hey man i've had a you know, white tails are great, but I gotta, I gotta go do something else. You know, I, I gotta go after another species. And and what was that that first, you know, non white tail species that you that you went after? 
the first thing I went after after whitetails was was definitely black bears, and I went to Ontario, had a tough hunt, but the last night I was there, um, I had a sow and two cubs came in, and it was just impressive to watch them. I mean, they're just jet black against the green of Ontario in the spring. I mean, just the, I mean, just just the contrast was amazing, and that got me hooked. And uh, obviously, you pass the sow and cubs, and and you watch them and enjoy them and take their pictures. And then it was a couple of years later where I went to Alberta and then was able to take a nice boar up there. But, you know, it kind of goes back to my childhood. I'd watch National Geographic and I'd, I'd watch uh, ESPN outdoors and, and read outdoor life, um, which is a blessing and a curse. And I just, it wasn't so much the animal I wanted to see. And I've, I've I actually just said this a couple of days ago to a guy, it wasn't so much about the animals as much as where they lived. So yeah. if somebody said, I'm going to put you on the world record black bear in Tennessee, I'd say, you know, I'd rather shoot an average bear in Canada because yeah. I wanted to put the animal with the territory that I dreamed about, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So maybe like elk in Kentucky to me is like, Oh, that sounds weird. Or yeah. I'm not sure I, that would trip my trigger like uh, elk in the Aspens of Colorado. So right. I wanted to see different parts of North America. And then I kind of, in my heart correlated that with whatever species live there. And that's kind of how my travels went. I certainly wasn't trying to fill a, a super slam list or anything like that. I just wanted to see North America and I wanted to see the Arctic and I wanted to see the swamps and the, you know, like the Aspens and the, um, I wanted to see all the environments. Um, and that's kind of how I, I catered my travels. Right. I mean, it sounds to me like you wanted, you wanted to travel, but hunt where you traveled, you know? And it, that's right. Okay. That's right. Okay, cool. So, so then, you know, why, why a black bear right off the bat? Why, why your first non-white tail species be a, a black bear when there's hundreds of other species, big game species in North America to hunt? It's a great question. Um, black bears to me, I, I grew up with a love of fishing and my dad would take me to Minnesota and Ontario when I was younger for, so I kind of grew up with that, that aura of that part of the world. And, and, you know, see every time you walk into a restaurant, there's a black bear rug and, you'd see a skull and you'd hear guys talk about it. And, you know, what I'd be fishing up there, like, Oh, we got to watch out for bears, you know? So as a kid, you start hearing about these bears. And then also, you know, it was something that it was in the spring. So it was around right after college got out. So I didn't have school to contend with. And where's a lot of the fall species like elk. In fact, one of the main reasons I never hunted elk was, was timing. I was always either in school yeah, or, you know, and I never could take a week off of school and not fall behind. So black bear in the spring was a no brainer because I was just out of school and, uh, you know, it was fairly affordable at the time and, and, uh, I could fish and it was in a part of the world that I fell in love with as a kid. So to me, it was something I, I just really wanted to do first. Nice. Nice. So after black bear was, was this something that you put a lot of thought to like oh yeah so I, all right so i yeah. i got i got black bear right uh now it's mm -hmm. time for something else did you have a like for me like at night when that, the kids are in bed and i'm a little bit behind you because i've only went on two out-of-state hunts one was elk in idaho and one was mule deer slash whitetail in nebraska and I have this, you know, I daydream a lot of all the, all the animals that I want to go harvest and where those animals are at and the logistics and all this stuff. Was this something that you did, like you planned for, or was it boom, Hey, 
this year I'm going to go do caribou. Um, I dream. I'm a, I'm a huge dreamer. I've been since I was a kid. I remember sitting on my in my backyard staring at the Mississippi. Uh, you know, growing up on the Mississippi River and literally looking at the lily pads across the river and just dreaming about the places I wanted to see and I could imagine those places. And so once I experienced something or, or, or had a, you know, and I felt like I'd, I'd experienced what I wanted to experience, then um, I would start reading again. And eventually, and there was no rhyme or reason for this, eventually I'd pick up a story or I'd start reading about the West, like a Zane Grey novel or um, and you know, like antelope and, you know, elk and mule deer. And, and, uh, I really got into the species. Like if I was going to hunt something, I would start reading everything I could about them and I'd watch videos and I'd really start to learn about their behavior and biology. And, and so that was so important to me to hunt them in the environments I, I dreamt about because, um, that to me was part of it. And so I, I can't say that I had a list and say, okay, antelope, uh, in 06 and, you know, musk ox in 09. It was really, um, a product of just where my dreams took me. And, uh, I just knew the areas I wanted to see. And, and, and my kids played a role too. Like when we got, my wife and I got married and, you know, we knew we wanted to have a family and I knew I I couldn't be gone and didn't want to be gone. Um, I kind of catered a lot of those trips to what would, uh, allow me to be home, um, when I did have kids. So, um, that's how I did it. But, um, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's how it worked out. When, um, what year was your first kid born? I had my first son, Zane, in 2011. Okay, 2011. Uh, and so that makes him, what, uh, seven years old now? Uh, he'll be seven in September, okay. yeah, so he's six. Six now, okay. So did you do a lot of that? those, those travel-type hunts before your kids were born? Oh, for sure, like... Yeah. It's funny you ask because we're sitting at this bar downtown, little bar restaurant with my wife's parents, and it's right before, maybe about oh, six, seven months before my son's born, and I can feel the talk, the, you know, the clock, and I'm like, tell my wife, I said, you know, I've got to, I've got to get to Alaska, I, I got to see that place because uh, I grew up with a really tight knit family, and 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 sure enough, it's worked out. I, you know, I love being home, and and I have less drive to to travel now that I have my kids, but. I remember sitting there in that, that dark, you know, kind of environment telling her like, uh, you know, I've got to do this, um, soon. And, uh, knowing that it was coming, like my, uh, it would be a little bit of a wait. And so, yeah, I, I did, I'd say 80% of it before I had children. And then once I had kids, there was two or three trips that I did, you know, I think that's even, yeah, three, maybe three or four trips I did. And it, it was, took a lot of juggling, like make sure my mother-in-law was here and, you know, I had time off of work and, and uh, everybody was healthy. And, um, so yeah, I, I made sure that I, cause people would tell me like, man, why are you, you're traveling a lot now? Don't you want to just wait till you get older? I'm like, you know, I got sick in 05 and, uh, you know, I had a, a little health incident in 05 and I remember laying in that hospital bed thinking, man, if I ever get a, if I ever get out of here, I'm, I'm not going to wait around anymore. I'm going to just go. And so that's, that was another reason I, I kind of, you know, really pushed the envelope. So, yeah. Man, that's crazy. So a lot of people, you know, they, this is kind of a crazy question. Cause I, you know, I know a lot of guys deal with this where sure. before kids, before you're married, you're free to do whatever you want. You can go hunt 40 days in a row 
right? You can, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you have nobody to answer to except yourself, right? Then, right. then a right. guy gets married, right? And now he has to cut back on some of that time. And then he has some kids and then he has to cut back on some of that time. Mm -hmm. with such a strong passion for bow hunting and the, not just a bow hunting, but like this adventure style bow hunting where these trips are not in the same state. They're, they're possibly days away. Like if there was an emergency, it might take you a day and a half, two days to get back to the house. So did that, did that like, I don't want to say put out the fire or drive or because mm -hmm. a lot of guys may have some resentment, maybe not direct resentment, but some kind of resentment toward their wife or their kids because they don't get to go do what they, they love to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think I told like my friend, Mitch, you mentioned from Palo, like, you know, until you, and you know, as a father, until you have children, until you're, yeah. you know, your kid's sick or, you know, you have other responsibilities. It's really hard to tell someone what to expect, but, um, I've always said, and it's not easy. I mean, uh, I'd be lying to you if I said there wasn't times that, uh, I was going to hunt and you wake up and you know, your son's got a fever and you can't go or, you know, and you just, uh, I always said my wife, she'd laugh if she heard me say this, but I always say first things first. And if I, I always tell myself that, and yep. what that basically means is I just, uh, I put my priorities like family first and, and when I tell it myself, it, it takes away a lot of that resentment. But I think it's important, too. I, I married a, a very independent, um, very, very um, understanding woman who, you know, when we were dating, I remember telling her, like, we went on a couple of dates, and it was in March, April. And I said, hey, I'm, I hunt a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to be hunting next week. She goes, oh, okay. Well, I didn't call for, like, two weeks because I was in Texas and, and Florida turkey hunting. And she goes, boy, I, I thought you were just hunting around here. I didn't know you were traveling. So when we were dating, we kind of, she knew, you know, how much passion I had for the outdoors. But at the same time, um, you know, I think if, if you, I would say this, if you don't put your kids and wife first, it will come back to haunt you Yeah. in some way, either, you know, you'll miss things or you'll, you know, it'll be a tough environment at home or things won't work out. And I think, and I can tell like I said, it's hard to tell people this who are hungry and young, but if you put too much on the table or sacrifice too much, it, it will haunt you. So I've, I've, uh, there's guys out there that are, that have done four times as much, 10 times as much, but, um, you don't know what price they've paid at home. So, right. um, that's kind of the advice I give is just put first things first and, and, uh, it, it will come back around. Right. Right. So with, with this passion, right? Like for me, the cold front comes through. It is, mm -hmm. it's October, it's late October, right? You know, the big bucks are going to be on their feet or something. And, and then the wife or somebody's just not having a good day. And you know that, God, I know I'm going to see a big buck or I know something's going to happen. My trail camera pictures are showing me that the data is there. And then that happens. Is that, is that difficult for you? Cause I know it is for me where, you know, for guys, maybe I'm not mature. Maybe I don't act mature and I pout a little bit. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Okay. I'll stay home. Blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Do, do you ever get to that where your pat, I mean, because for hunters, oh, sure. our, like 
our passion is very strong for this. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's definitely times that, uh, you know, that it's not easy or, you know, I'm, I have to get up and, you know, I want to get up, uh, at three thirty go turkey hunting. And my wife said, well, I have a morning shift tomorrow and, you know, and, and absolutely. I mean, I'd be lying to you. Um, and everybody else would be too, if they said, Oh no, it's smooth sailing, you know, but I think that's whether you're a, you know, you, you're a, you know, bicyclist, a, a marathon runner, if you have to train or do what you like to do, but it's, it's, uh, I've learned to, and I, you know, when I was 30, I'm 40 now, definitely was a lot harder, um, to step back and say, Oh, I, I don't want to stay home or, but you do, but like you say, <laughs> you use the word pout. It's true. We've all done it. I've done it, but I found that, uh, how much better I felt about myself when I've done the, I hate to say the right thing, but you know, you, you just, you just put all that aside and say, you know, this comes first and, uh, it's always come back around. It always does on the flip side of it. If you don't, I think it comes back to bite you, whether it's, uh, let's say you go out there and you're like, well, I'm going hunting and then you don't enjoy it as much. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's more spite when you get home, you know, your kids kind of look at you like, you know, so I've always felt like, uh, I've balanced it well and it's been okay, but yeah, you betcha. I've definitely felt like, you know, that, uh, you know, that selfish attitude, like, I just want to go. I've worked all week. I've waited all year and now I can't go. And it's just, um, but I, I think it comes back around if you do the right thing and just take care of your family first. Right. Absolutely, man. All right. Now, when I was, you know, in 2006, I was sitting in this tree stand. I kind of have a life-changing moment. That's when I said I'm going to be a bow hunter. But I had a, kind of another mm-hmm. life-changing moment. And it was when I went on my very first elk hunt up in the mountains in Idaho. And, it, it, dude, it it rained for five straight days. I was in a tent, I remember, one time for like, man, almost 20 hours because it was it rained and snowed and it was just miserable miserable but it was gorgeous and when we did get out you know we climbed to the top and we we looked and it was just another one of these things where I said to myself I have to do and see as much of the west or this world as humanly possible did you throughout your journeys did you have uh, um, any moments like that where it wasn't just a check mark for you, like, hey, I want to go hunt antelope, check mark, done, but maybe another life changing experience? Oh, for sure. I, I've had a lot of those uh, through the years where, you know, one of the best lines I ever read was, you know, everybody has moments, but not everybody sees them. And it, it's so true. There's things that pop up, whether it's a, a bad shot you make and, and it's a lesson learned that you can choose to learn from it or you can, you know, you know, powder be miserable about it. And there were plenty of times when I was in Alaska or Canada or out West where, you know, you step back and you're like, you know, wow, I, I got to see this in this, the way I pictured it. And that's to me how I always knew, like I had the experience I wanted when, you know, I, I just saw it. What has not, it really had nothing to do with the animal either. Um, it was a combination of, of the colors of the trees and the weather conditions and the things that led up to the hunt. So absolutely. I mean, there was, I mean, countless times where, you know, I was in the middle of nowhere and I had, you know, moments like, I, I can't believe I'm here. 
and I'm a pretty spiritual guy. I would always, you know, always say, you know, thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity is what one of my favorite things I say in the field. You know, I never say thanks for the success or I uh, hope I'm successful. I always just say thanks for the opportunity because that's really, you know, all we need is, uh, you know, those things in life. And that, that that's really what I've hung my hat on. And, uh, but you bet I've, I've had a lot of those moments out, out West and in the field. All right. So now, of all the species, okay, can you name in order? This is probably, I don't know if this is going to be tough for you or not, but can you name in order all of the animals that you've harvested with a bow? Uh, yeah, I could. Let, I let's probably do it. could, yeah. Let's do it, let's do it. Like different, like the species you Yeah, mean? species, species. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, let's see, whitetails, black bear, wild turkey, caribou antelope, mule deer, muskox, mountain goat, cougar, um, some Africa species, moose, bison, elk. I think I got them. Got them. Awesome. Now, I think so. Of all those species that you've hunted, was, Uh was there, is there one of them where it was just like the greatest adventure like you wish you had a, a movie crew with you or you wish that you know you could have you could share that moment with everybody uh, that it, it was just so exciting um, and such a big rush the entire time i think probably mountain goat in alaska because i'm about 5'10 225 and gravity isn't my friend and <laughs> and you know, I, I, I quote unquote trained for it and, and thought I was ready for it. But when I got there and put those crampons on and just that, the sheer steepness of it and the, how slippery it was and how many play, ways there were to die, uh, I think to me that was the one never at any point in my life have I felt so worthless and helpless as I did climbing up that mountain. You know, like if you slip down three feet and the person you're with like, don't look down, quit looking. And you look down, you're like, how did I even get to where I'm at and how am I going to get down? Yeah. And then, you know, the shots are long and, the, and it, it's just a, it's a mind game. I would say that was the one, the one hunt that I, I, I really went from, I can't do this to, I can't believe I did this. Um, that was probably to me, the thing I'll take with me to my grave is, is how proud I was when we got off that mountain. So that was, you would say that that mountain goat was not only like one of the biggest adventures, but also the toughest, hardest hunt you ever, you've For ever sure. been on. Yeah, but I would always put mountain goat first, and and probably bison second. As as uh, I guess, uh, you know that that uh, as far as like man, I don't know if this is going to happen. I mean, these things are, but mountain goat just the physical. It's wet. It's cold. Nothing dries out. I mean, you're literally getting into a wetsuit every morning. Um, you know, you're sleeping in a tent that's the size of a couch for two guys. Yeah, and. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've said that for years, and it continues to come to my to my mind as being the toughest thing I've done in the field, mountain goat for sure. Quick question about uh, buffalo, right? Like, sure. the American buffalo plays a huge role in the history of the United States, right? So, sure. when, when you when you went out and you hunted this buffalo, was there just like a sense of that, like a sense of history, like oh, for this sure. is a big moment? Oh. Absolutely. Like I, I read so many books on it and, you know, growing up, you, 
you see the skulls and the hide, especially in Iowa, you know, the places they used to roam and absolutely. I mean, it's such a, especially when you hunt them in the wild, you know, where you're, it's such a privilege and you're looking at these things. You're like, these were, you know, they've been here for centuries, you know, and then the numbers they used to have. So it's, it's really kind of a, it's hard to describe the feeling of looking at them. And also when you got a bow in your hand, you're like, uh, you know, this is the way they used to do it. Um, for sure. There's definitely a, a sense of, uh, some awe when you're, when you're hunting them. Yeah. And they're right. so big. They're yeah. so big. I mean, they're, they're the size of a cow, right? Oh, they're, I, I, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, you know, how big they are. And they're so bulky. They look like linebackers. I mean, they're, and they're so wary. I mean, everybody thinks of Buffalo is kind of a big, you know, domain, not real, doesn't yeah. but my gosh, I mean, they, and they warned me about that before I got there. Like these things, I mean, you know, if you get an opportunity, you'll be lucky. I mean, they don't, they don't miss much and they, they smell like a white tail and they've got the eyes and, and so, uh, they were every, they were right about that. It, it was really a challenging hunt. So, so then do you have any other, you know, a lot of these guys, they, they, you, in your case where you're doing a lot of different traveling, right. And there's, uh, you know, you're in some places that are not very forgiving, you know, similar to your mountain goat hunt. Did you have any experiences where you had maybe a life or death situation or, you know, you ran out of water or you ran out of food on the mountain or anything like that? Um, yeah, we've had, a, uh, I would say, you know, we were hunting in Alaska, you know, we rolled a, a Viking down a hill. Um, you know, I got Giardia you know, a parasite from a stream when I was hunting Buffalo, I got, I got pretty sick with that. Um, I think even some of my scariest moments have been hunting whitetails where, you know, uh, I had a Polaris blow up on me a couple of years ago when I was mowing a field. And I think there's a picture of it in the book where just literally, I mean, we're talking like Bruce Willis diehard stuff, just like <laughs> a boom, like so bad that I just, I literally flinched like when the, the tires started flying in the air and popping and, and, uh, so yeah, you know, for sure there's, those, you know, those moments where you look back and you're like, man, I mean, that was a, you know, that was a, that was a close one. And, you know, I remember getting lost in Alaska after I had this moose rack on my back covered in blood. I was on a high and we're like, you know, congratulating each other. And, and, uh, the guy I'm with says, well, I'm going to take the meat back in the Argo. And I said, oh, I want to walk back with the rack. It's just one of those cool things. And All right. And so, you know, smart guy tries to take a shortcut and winds up in this, this creek with grizzly tracks everywhere and no gun, no weapon and soaking wet. And, um, those are the moments, I mean, I could sit here and tell you like, oh, no big deal. But those are the moments you're like, man, you you know, you're afraid. You're like, this is, this is not going to turn out well for you. So you betcha. There's been a lot of moments for me that, uh, I'm just thankful I got out of. So, right. Right. So failure, you know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast where, if you don't learn, and this is in life in general, if you can't learn from your mistakes, man, you're doing something wrong, especially if you're trying to improve. Have throughout your years as a bow hunter, have there ever been any mistakes or failures that you've made that you were able to learn from and then be successful on the back end? You know, it sounds like a cliche and I'm not, not trying to sound corny, but I would say every one of them. Like, and I've made more, I would argue. You know, people, a guy said to me once, man, you've, you know, you've had more success than I I said, I guarantee I've had more failures too. Yeah. And from whitetails that I've lost to, you know, rushing a shot when I knew better, 
um, you know, not clipping on a safety harness. Um, but everything, I always try to keep my glass half full. I really, I tell my son that when we play ball, not so much hunting cause he's pretty young, but you know, he strikes out or makes, I say, listen, you can choose to learn from it or you can, you know, pout about it. And I think every decision we make in the field, we can certainly blood trails, you know, how you approach them, um, to effort, you know, just, just go, you know, I, I shot one of the deer in the story, uh, with sweaty gym clothes on because, yeah. you know, I could have very easily gone home and just said, oh, this is not meant to be. So the, yeah, you betcha the, I, everything that I've ever done, including, you know, just this last year, I, I learned from, and I tried to, and sometimes you don't want to learn. You're just like, Stubborn. you know, like you're sick of learning. <laughs> yeah. You're like the heck with this. Like, you know, I'm done. Like I don't want to hunt anymore. And, um, but you step back, you get away from it and you're like, you know, I'm glad I had that experience because, um, success is worthless without, you know, having, you know, it's like a team who never loses a game. You know, how do you really know how they handle themselves if they did? Um, and I think that says a lot about somebody when you, you realize that, you know, they, they fall on their face too. And, and I think that was the premise of the book was my buddy read it the first time. He's like, man, he says, you sure you want to put all that in there? Like all the animals and the missed shots and the, and the screw ups. I'm like, absolutely. You know, nobody wants to read about, you know, a big buck or they want to, you know, everybody's had failures and people want to know that other people have too and, and how it worked out. So to me, that was the most important part of the book was yeah. the failures right. to me. So, Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. Now, your book. Um, what made you, you know, you, you have all these experiences and, you know, you could have just had the pictures on your wall and the mounts on your wall at home and, and the, the memories that you, you kept to yourself. What made you want to share your story in the form of a book? You know, I would say without a doubt, it was my kids. Uh, my little boys, I, I, I told my wife, I like, you know, I, I would try to tell the story like about the mountain goat or anything. And no matter what I did, I, I, I didn't think they'd get an appreciation for, you know, how, you know, how many times I felt like I couldn't do it. And then it worked out or whitetails where I had failed and it worked out. And I think to them, it was important for me to, they knew how passionate I was because I was in the field a lot. And if I wasn't around to show them, they'd be left with a bunch of animals on the wall or pictures and they'd say, well, you know, this is what dad did. Yeah. And they go, oh, you know, that's, that's interesting. But I wanted them to, I wanted them to, uh, you know, have a better understanding of, you know, why I did it and what it meant to me and, and, uh, and have a better understanding of those things, what went into it, how passionate I was about the outdoors. So my kids, it was, it was important for me to write those stories for my boys. And then it just kind of took off from there. Right. Right. So really vague high level question sure. what what does bow hunting mean to you to me bow hunting you know i think it's a it's a compilation of of effort time spent in the field precision practice and also knowing that you might get one opportunity a year one chance to make it all come together. And there's a very good likelihood that won't happen. But if you're still okay with that, there's no better way to get close to nature, you know, to really understand the outdoors in all the seasons. There's nothing out there that can give you more experience through all the seasons than bow hunting and nothing that can make you more responsible or irresponsible than bow hunting. Mm -hmm. So 
to me, it's a lot of things that teaches you a lot of life lessons about patience and persistence. And, and you show me a bow hunter, um, especially an unsuccessful one who keeps trying. And I'd probably take that guy with me anywhere to do anything because you'd probably work hard and, you know, keep trying to get it done. Right. Right. Now, earlier in the podcast, I talked to you a little bit about, you know, these levels that we go through or these periods of time where, you know, you were kind of going through, I'll shoot anything to, I want to shoot a buck. Mm -hmm. And now I want to shoot a mature buck. And then we get to the end of that list or you want, maybe, maybe you were after a selective deer, but we get to the end of that list. And, and at the end of this list is sharing bow hunting or hunting or outdoors with others, right? You're, you're, you're no longer interested in pleasing yourself. You're, uh, you're interested in educating and pleasing others. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples of that? Or, I mean, cause I, I know what you're going to say, like your kids, right? I mean, sure. You're, you want to um, yeah, explain I, that. Uh, as far as educating other people, you get to the point where I think you get to the point, anything in life where you realize you've accomplished what you want to do. And then you can keep, you can keep going realizing you won't do anything else for you, or you can, you know, find someone else that's hungry and wants to do it and you want them to do it right. And so for me, I always say, you know, I tell my kids, you know, try to leave a footprint, you know, try to leave something behind that maybe a kid will pick up the book, especially in this time where, you know, we're all at crossroads with, with wildlife and hunting and to pick it up and say, Hey, you know, you know, look at these, you know, he talks about the different kinds of birds and the leaves and the wind and the, you know, I kind of want to feel those things and I want to be out there. And so my goal too, with that is just to have, even if it's one bow hunter picks it up at 10 years old and looks at the pictures and reads it, and then he passes it on to his two buddies. And before you know it, it just keeps, you know, it keeps the cycle going and you don't accomplish that with pictures of trophy animals and you don't accomplish that with pictures on the wall. But if you can get somebody engaged in a story, then that will keep going through generations. So my kids, it's true, but also young kids, I mean, and adults, I mean, that might want to get their kids involved. So my goal with it was to leave a footprint to, to have other people, because that's how I got started. I read magazines and books and, and got, you know, addicted to it. So right. um, that, that that's what I wanted to accomplish was just give other people an idea of what it's like to be out there and maybe get them interested in trying. Right. All right. Crimson Arrows, a bow hunting odyssey. If the listeners of this podcast want to purchase this book, where can they purchase it at? Uh, right now it's available on Amazon. Um, Barnes and Noble has it. I uh, also have a website, crimsonarrows.com. I'll be starting to add more blogs to that this year. And uh, right now the quickest way to get it, though, is Amazon. Um, they get it to you in a couple of days. And you can get it off my website, too, via the publisher. But uh, any of those avenues um, would be ways to get it pretty easily. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, are you done writing? Is this, you know, is it's this funny it? you said, I, I said, I said I was, and, uh, I, uh, I was going to take a break. And then about two weeks ago, I got a, a bug to write about this last year's whitetail and I, I sent it to bow hunter magazine. So hopefully that'll be coming out sometime this next year, um, on my 2017 whitetail and, uh, uh, kind of goes along with this program here. Just, uh, it's called hourglass and just, you know, how little time we have, but we make, uh, we make it count. So, right. um, hopefully that comes out, but I, I told myself I was done. And then I, like you say, you just get inspired to write and 
and share a story and uh and i got that done last week so so we'll see if i'm done now but i i enjoy writing i enjoy sharing stories so Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'll be honest. I didn't make it through as much of the book as I wanted to before, uh, before the podcast, but you know how life gets uh, away from you sometimes. Oh my gosh. This is going to be the book that I know. And I know that's a long ways away, but this is going to be the book that I bring into the Turkey blind with me this year. That's awesome. So I would love to hear, I would love to hear when you get through it, what you think of it. And hopefully it, uh, hopefully it, uh, gives you some, uh, you know, some cool stories and cool, uh, some laughs along the way. And there's a few, quite a few turkey stories in there. So hopefully you enjoy it. Well, I tell you what, I really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast and, uh, good luck in your upcoming seasons. Hey, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Huge shout out to Ead for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate your time. And uh, again, if you get the opportunity to, uh, buy his book crimson arrows a bow hunting odyssey uh go check it out i can't wait to get into it i've read the first uh couple chapters and uh, i can't wait to get into the rest of it but uh, amazon pick it up support a fellow bow hunter and uh man i don't know i don't even know how to plug a book this is the first time i've ever had an author on so anyway crimson arrows a bow hunting odyssey anyway Huge shout out to all of you. I know this was a longer podcast, but thank you very much for sticking it out. I know I enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully you guys did as well. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Wasp Archery, Gearhead, Ozonics, Lone Wolf, Bighorn Outfitters, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ripcord, Arrowrest. Guys, if it wasn't for these company supporting this uh, there would be a lot less content coming out if any content at all by this time um, I do put a lot of time in this back room and my wife sacrifices uh, having to deal with the kids so uh, shout out to her as well but thank you thank you thank you other than that guys Instagram Facebook Nine Finger Chronicles make sure you like 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 them and Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, guys. I mean, keep an eye out. There's a lot of big things that are going to be happening there. And you need to go and like the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network Facebook page and Instagram account. I'd like to get those two on the same playing field. That way, that way uh, you know, I can start posting. Uh, when I start posting more things, especially on the network, you guys are involved with that as well. Uh, be sure to listen to the other podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation. We got the DIY Sportsman. We got the Land and Legacy podcast. We got Transition Wild. And uh, due to popular request... Coming soon, we are going to be adding another podcast, and it's going to be for the guys who live down in the south. So, uh, you know, obviously the guys in the north will probably be able to take away something from it. But uh, I've had a huge outcry of people going, hey, man, what about a podcast for people who live in the south? What about us? Uh, We go like the strategies and tactics and gear is a little different just because it's different down here. And uh, so I'm going to be solving that problem for you guys and uh, look for another podcast dedicated to the South coming up in the next couple weeks. Other than that, guys, I really appreciate you taking your time to 
listen to this podcast, if you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good weekend.